0: Father in heaven, as we continue our journey in time, reviewing some history today, we do so in the light of the word of God, asking that you will give us understanding once again. Pray, Father, that you will remind us of your word and the fact that you do not change, We human beings may be confused, but we know that God, our Father, Jesus, our Savior, and the Holy Spirit are not confused. So we pray, Father, that you will be with us today, enlighten our minds, and we thank you for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be focusing again on some history, but the history that we're going to look at in the next two days is going to be something that we need to look at very, very carefully. I want to remind you that the caution that I have given you is that though we're talking of time, we're especially concerned about the Bible. And it may be the teaching of the Bible, but it is the Bible that determines whether it is or it is not. Somebody may claim to be teaching the Bible, The only way you know is by comparing Scripture with Scripture. There is a lot of confusion in Christianity today, and some of that confusion is also in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You and I will only know for sure what truth is when we for ourselves study the Word of God. Today we're going to be focusing on on the teaching of the early Adventist Church about Christ our Righteousness from 19, yeah, 1900 until 1950. Now when I say early Adventist Church, it's going to be a little later than what we have been talking about more recently. I want to make a couple of observations as we start. Come on in, there are more chairs and there are ways of us being able to adjust that as well. So... Chuck, I really appreciate your help. And if you see that we're running out of chairs or anything like that, be sure and let us know. And, uh, and even fill in some. There's some down there as well. I want to make two observations as we get started today. These are important in our, uh, in our work. One is that we tend to focus on differences. You know, I am truly grateful to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I want to say that again. I am truly grateful to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't grown up where I did. Now, don't misunderstand me. I had to make decisions along the way just like you did. But it's easy to get confused and into the stream of life and not take the time to figure out where we're supposed to be. But we can't afford to do that forever. We have to be very, very careful. But I am so thankful that there is so much in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that we agree on. And even though in the next couple of days we may be talking about some of the things that we have differences on, and where there is discussion going on, don't lose your focus on Jesus. And don't lose your focus on the fact that we may talk about something here or something there, and then forget about there's so much that we all agree on and there's no confusion on. Don't lose that. Secondly, we must be students of the Scriptures. We, you notice that I've emphasized it in bold, we, that is you and me and all of us, must be not only students of the Scripture, but we must have a personal relationship with Jesus. The Scriptures are our only safeguard in these last days. I want to place some emphasis on that today, so I'm going to take a section out of the book, Great Controversy, and we're going to read through it today. It's in your notes, and it'll be on the screen. It is vital that you and I recognize that in these last days, if we're not students of the scriptures, we are likely and very likely will be deceived. So here I'm going to read through this. It's going to take me a little bit to do it. So I get a little farther in it. I may just hit some highlights. But on the first couple of sections at least, I want to read here from Great Controversy, page 593 and paragraph 2. Everybody together? All right. I don't want you. I mean, when I said together, don't read it out loud with me. Follow in the notes. We'll come to places where we'll read it out loud. But here's what it says. Those who endeavor to obey all the commandments of God will be opposed and derided. They can stand only in God. In order to endure the trial before them, they must understand the will of God as revealed in His Word. They can honor Him only as they have a right conception of His character, government, and purposes, and in act in accordance with them. Now read this sentence with me, please. None but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand throughout the last great conflict. Do you catch that? I'm reading now. To every soul will come the searching test. Shall I obey God rather than men? The decisive hour is even now at hand. Are our feet planted on the rock of God's immutable word? Read with me, please. Are we prepared to stand firm in defense of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus? Where's that from? Revelation Revelation 12, 17, Revelation 14, 12. And don't forget that the two are connected. And I don't mean the two verses. I mean the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. There's a lot of confusion out there in relationship to the faith of Jesus. Going on a little farther, I'm going to read. Here we are. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Ignorance, that's from Psalm 16. Ignorance is no excuse for error or sin. When there is every opportunity to know the will of God. A man is traveling and comes to a place where there are several roads and a guide board indicating where each one leads. If he disregards the guide board and takes whichever road seems to be him to be right, he may be ever so sincere, but will in all probability find himself on the wrong road. Amen to that. Now, folks, you and I are going to have to face a reality tomorrow it will become crystal clear what that reality is. There, is. there are two roads out there today within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You're going to have to choose one. And you and I will see as we begin to discuss this today that as you look at these roads, it's very clear that one of those roads is the road that will lead to the kingdom of heaven. But they both don't lead to the kingdom of heaven. I'm not telling you which road. That's where you have to be a student of the word of God and get it figured out. But you and I have to realize that just like I believe that the Bible teaches that when Jesus comes again, we are going to be caught up together with Him in the clouds of glory and we're going to be uh, taken to heaven. What a wonderful day that's going to be. I believe that. But there's a lot of Christianity today who believes in the secret rapture and that some people, when Jesus comes the second time, are going to be whisked off to heaven when everybody's going to be left behind. And I'm going to tell you, that you can believe both of those sincerely, but one group is going to be tremendously surprised, worse than surprised. They're going to be left behind, excuse the pun intended. So you and I need to understand how challenging this really is to you and to me today. We must study the Word of God. Going on, she says, we should exert all the powers of the mind in the study of the scriptures, should task the understanding to comprehend as far as mortals can the deep things of God. Yet we must not forget that the docility and submission of a child is the true spirit of the learner. Scriptural difficulties can never be mastered by the same methods that are employed in grappling with philosophical problems. We should not engage in the study of the Bible with that self-reliance with which so many enter the domains of science. Read with me, please. But with a prayerful dependence upon God and a sincere desire to learn His will. Read co- uh, continue to read with me, please. We must come with a humble and teachable spirit to obtain knowledge of from the great I Am. Otherwise, evil angels will so blind our minds and harden our hearts that we shall not be impressed by the truth. If you have been listening to Brother Sliger in the morning, this morning he made it very clear that we must be connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. We must understand that we are in a war and this war is for us. To be destroyed, that's Satan's goal. To be saved, that's God's goal. He wants to save us because we're living in the last days. Now we have chairs in here, the people can sit up there. We can bring chairs down here so people can see the screen and even come down here in front if we need to. So I just want to make sure that everybody can see the screen and participate and gets the materials as well. Yeah, the sign-up sheets, so uh, sign-up uh, yeah, are around here as well. So uh, is anybody who hasn't gotten the sign-up, uh, sign-in sheet yet? Okay. All right, so far we seem to be doing all right. So. I'm just going to set it up here in case we need it. Yeah, set them up there just in case. That's great. Um, I'm going to let you read the next paragraph uh, on your own, except for the last sentence. I'm going to read it. That begins, an understanding. An understanding, and I'm down here, by the way, of Bible truth depends not so much on the power of intellect brought to uh, the search as in on the singleness of purpose, the earnest longing after righteousness. She says, We are living in the most solemn period of this world's history. The destiny of earth's teeming multitudes is about to be decided. Our own future well-being and also the salvation of other souls depend upon the course which we now pursue. Read with me, please. We need to be guided by the spirit of truth. Every follower of Christ should earnestly inquire. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? We need to humble ourselves before the Lord with fasting and prayer and to meditate much upon his word, especially upon the scenes of the judgment. When you're in a real war, you don't take anything for granted. You want everything in place, every tool in place. You need all that you can have. She says we should now seek a deep and living experience in the things of God. We have not a moment to lose. Events of vital importance are taking place around us. We are on Satan's enchanted ground. Go ahead and read with me. Sleep not, sentinels of God. Continue to read. The foe is lurking near, ready at any moment. Should you become lax and drowsy to spring upon you and to make you his prey. I don't take it lightly standing before you and sharing the things that I'm sharing with you, but I'm a human being. I am not God. You and I can only trust God. You can trust no human being. You have to take what a human being says and compare it with the Word of God. The Word of God is our source of truth, our source of faith, our source of understanding. By the grace of God we've been given the gift of the spirit of prophecy. How grateful we are. But we must not become dependent on her. We must be dependent on the word of God. Amen. We are so grateful though for the instruction that we have received. I want to talk about a summary of the teachings of 19, from 1900 to 1950. And some of you are going to say this looks awful familiar. Do you see my smile? I think you'll get my point as we go along a little bit. First of all, if you take a look at what Ellen White, Jones, Wagner, and Prescott, and others said, not necessarily from 1900 to 1950, but you take what they said before, and we might have to talk about 1900 to 1950, because Jones and Wagner did take different tracks along the way, but their Uh, The word of Ellen White and the word of God and others still lingers back today in from the time of 1900 to 1950. I should have made that clear on the slide and I'm sorry that I didn't. But the teaching during that time continued to be that Christ is our righteousness, righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith includes obedience to the law through the power of the presence of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Righteousness by faith is possible because Christ gained the victory in human nature like ours after sin. His victory was a real victory over sin in just the way we have to fight sin. Sin is overcome by the power of Christ who overcame sin just like we have to overcome it. He used the same tools that we do. The seventh day is the Sabbath. The dead are resting in the grave until Jesus returns. Similarity also to our other basic doctrines. Of course, there's continued to be in that time even further discussion and continued discussion on the covenants, which I've already talked about. So I'll keep going from there. Um, and also, the emphasis was that the latter rain had been falling in 1888 and the time that followed along the way. I'll give you evidence of, uh, of that a little bit here as we get into our, uh, our meat today, and that the loud cry, loud cry of the fourth angel was sounding, that there will be a people on earth who will have attained to that perfection of character, that when the Lord comes, there will be a company who will be found complete in Him to perfect this work in the hearts of individuals. And to prepare such a company is the work of the third angel's message, as Wagner said back in 1888. The reason I'm making the point is I want you to understand that even from 1900 to 1950, Those basic understandings continued to remain in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I do want to make it clear, because the slide, it could be confusing here, so make sure you make a note of it, that Jones and Wagner at this time were not running down the same track. But Ellen White made it abundantly clear that even if the messengers were to wander away, the truth was still the same. The Word of God doesn't change because Judas hung himself. He might have been preaching along with Jesus along the way, but because Judas hung himself, do we throw the Bible away? No. No, because Judas didn't allow that word to stay in his heart. You and I will find that's always a challenge with human beings. And it's true today. We face the same challenges along the way. I want to remind you, though, that i um, skipping down from the issues of the uh, covenant here, and I just want to remind you of this. The doctrine of the sanctuary in heaven was still prominent in the church and taught widely in similar fashion as before. These things have been there and they continued to be there from 1888, which is kind of our starting point, through 1900 and into 1950. The summary of the teachings continues to be, we are able to be reminded. General conference, I want to remind you of the historical context now. Because it's important for us to realize that the people living in the, this time from 1900 to 1950, there was something going on around them. There were things taking place that had either direct or even indirect impact upon people's thinking and people's lives and the challenges they faced from day to day. First of all, there were the general conferences of 1901 and 1903. I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about that, but those of you who know your Adventist history know that those two general conferences had significant impact on the organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. You understand that, Right. And the method of organization that we use today is basically what was developed in 1903. 1901 took some steps towards major reorganization, but they began to run into some difficulties. I'm being oversimplistic, but they began to run into some difficulties in the application of the organization. They came back in 1903, and they came up with some, uh, uh, some things that we are still work with today, including the unions and, and all that in terms of the way that we're organized. You know, we have a conference, we have the union, we have the division, et cetera, et cetera, Another thing that was significant that happened during this time is Ellen White died in 1915. If you don't think that was significant in the Seventh-day Adventist church, it was. But there were other things that were going on around that time as well. World War I. That was significant. It actually began before Ellen White died. Of course, there was the sinking of the Lusitania, and uh, officially the U.S. entered uh, World War I on April 6, 1917, even though the war started in fourteen, Then there was World War II, Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. Those events taking place had to have an impact upon the church. But the wonderful thing is you don't see theological shift taking place during that time. That's interesting to me. I'd like to pursue that a little bit farther, but we don't have time for that today. Just keeping the context a little bit as well, the membership in 1900 was 75,000. By 1950 was 756,000. That's about a tenfold increase in the membership of the church in 50 years. General Conference presidents during that time include A.G. Daniels, Spicer, Watson, McElhaney, and Branson. If you follow closely, I can't take the time to talk about the significance of that that I I came up with, but uh, in my own mind, just looking at it, but follow along and see if you see some significance along the way. I'm going to look at two major focuses today. The first one is In terms of A.G. Daniels, who was the General Conference President from 1901 until the year 1922, he lived from 1858 to 1935, a minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church who served in Texas, He was secretary to James and Ellen White uh, for a year, and then he became an evangelist. In 1886, he was called to New Zealand, an evangelist and a president of Australia and the Australasia Union Conference until 1901. They were all you know, progressive there, but I'm not trying to break all that down. He was also the GC president, as I said, from 1901 until 1922. He was the longest serving general conference president serving for 21 years of our history. The reason I'm bringing him up and just kind of sharing that little bit of history is because he wrote a book or organized a book, pulled together some resources that I strongly encourage you to have in your library. I believe it's still available. If anybody, if you been looking the ABC, was it in the ABC? Now, somebody said they went looking for some books and they wound up finding them. Did anybody find A.G. Daniels in the ABC? Found one. Which book did which book you find? A.G. Daniels, Christ Our Righteousness. I found one. She found one. Oh, but that's an old one. Oh, and I'm going to have to check and find out if it's out of print. They can get it to A.K.M.S. Message Committee. Uh, many. They, they sell the box. So. Some people have it out there. Look online. You'll find it. Okay? But don't go to Amazon where you find that it's $100 or something like that. When these books go out of print, people take advantage of these things, and, and it's out there. By the way, I have a an electronic copy that I think I downloaded from online. So um, you can do that as well. But here's the significant part of his role. First of all, A.G. Daniels was a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He was born in 1858. He was alive and serving in 1886 and the years following. He was the general conference president starting in 1900, and he served the first quarter of this period of of years, and I say first quarter, about the first 25 years of this 50-year period we're looking at right now. He has significant words to say in relationship to what was happening the people that were there and witnessed what was happening, we should be listening to. I didn't say they were always right. We need to be looking at what they had to say and their perspective. In uh, in uh, the year uh, 1924, October 22, an interesting date, by the way, uh, 1924, the Ministerial uh, advisory, advisory Council Got together and they decided that they needed to have a compilation of Ellen White writings on justification by faith. Now the reasons for it are significant and we're going to look at that along the way here. But they asked Elder Daniels, who had retired just a couple years before, if he would spearhead this project. And so he says that he began an exhaustive research of the spirit of prophecy writings and printed articles in files for a period from 1887 until 1912. If you don't think that's a significant task, when there were no computers to do research on, I just can't imagine what he was trying to accomplish and how that all got done. The importance is that this work summarizes Adventist teaching on this subject until 1926 through the first quarter of the 20th century. Now let me explain this one sentence is quite important. The reason that's important is because today there's a lot of confusion and a lot of discussion about what it was that we Believed from 1888 to 1900, and so on and so forth. And what we should understand about that 1888 experience and yada yada yada. And I say 1888 that whole time during that. The problem is that today there are significant voices who say that we are doing today what uh, and we all agree and believe on the same thing in relationship to righteousness by faith, and we always have. Okay? There never has been a change in that, and this is just basically what the Reformers were teaching, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to watch what happens in the history, because here's Daniels, who was alive during that time. He puts together this book And in this book he makes some fascinating statements and he speaks to his own time and from what his understanding is and what the General Conference Ministerial Department uh, understood during this time, he tells us what really was going on. Whereas some people today were saying, we're doing today just what everybody was doing then and we have always have. Then I have to ask the question: what does he mean when he says we aren't doing in his time what we knew we should be doing? So let me, I'll, I'll make the point clearer as we go on. Here's what he says in his foreword to his book. It says, seeking advice and counsel from my colleagues, I sent out advance sections of the manuscript for careful reading and suggestion. The response from fellow laborers in all sections of the North American field has been a most encouraging and appreciative nature, and urgency in completing the work has been emphasized. A suggestion made by a number of fellow ministers had led to the preparation of a chapter on the subject of righteousness by faith from the Bible standpoint as an introduction to the compilation from the writings of the Spirit of Prophecy. Notice what he says here. This, it is believed, will give scriptural authority. And what's the next word? permanence to the theme which is of such vital importance to God's people at this time. That is very interesting to me because I'm going to make a bold statement today. If that was to be something that we should consider to be permanent, then we have to ask ourselves, is it permanent today? The Word of God clearly portrays the way of righteousness by faith, the writings of the spirit of prophecy he's talking here, greatly amplify and elucidate the subject. In our blindness and dullness of heart, we have wandered far out of the way and for many years have been failing to appropriate this sublime truth. Would you read that sentence with me? That last little part here. And for many years have been failing to appropriate this sublime truth. When did he say this? 1926, if we've still always been doing it and we picked it up in 1888 and it's always been there, why does the former general conference president who wrote right two years before tell us that we have been failing to appropriate the sublime truth? But all the while our great leader has been calling his people to come into line on this great fundamental of the gospel receiving by faith the imputed righteousness of christ for our sins that are past and the imparted righteousness of christ for the revealing for revealing the divine nature in human flesh interesting so much to talk about so little time A careful, connected study of the writings of the Spirit of prophecy regarding the subject of righteousness by faith has led to the settled conviction that the instruction given presents two aspects. Primarily, the great, amazing fact that by faith in the Son of God, sinners may receive the righteousness of God. And secondarily... The purpose and providence of God in sending the specific message of receiving the righteousness of God by faith to his people assembled in the general conference in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota in the year 1888. This latter aspect cannot be disregarded by Seventh-day Adventists without missing a most important lesson that the Lord designed to teach us. It is this conviction that has made it seem necessary to include in the compilation the instruction given concerning the experiences and developments connected with and following the Minneapolis conference. In the forward to the book, Elder Daniels explains the reason for the book. And he's saying that there is, we are losing sight of that and we need to make sure we don't lose sight of it. And so the General Conference Ministerial Association Advisory Council asked Elder Uh, Daniels to put this information together so that it wouldn't be lost and it would be able to be brought back in front of the people. But it was necessary to reiterate what information was there because as time goes by, we lose sight of what we don't focus on. That's my interpretation of what he was saying, okay? So I want to give you a summary of the teachings as identified by A.G. Daniels. Uh Uh-huh, you saw this before, but I want to bring out some other aspects of it here. You didn't see it quite in this form. First of all, he says in his book, pages 9 through 22... And, 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 again, I, what I'm doing is summarizing the teaching of the period of time here. And this is one of the best sources, because it was 1926 when this came out, right in the middle of this period of time, clearly revealing to us what the Seventh-day Adventist Church leadership was believing and teaching at that time. Okay? First of all, he taught that the source of Christ our righteousness is the Lord Simply. Secondly, the nature of righteousness is the opposite of sin. All of us are sinners, none of us are righteous, there is no righteousness in us. Quoting from Romans, provision has been made for us to be cleansed from unrighteousness. Examples are Abel, Noah, Abraham, Lot, Zacharias, and Elizabeth, and the Gentiles, because there it talks about these people and the righteousness that they had received and accepted, being by faith and then he says it is received by faith according to Paul in Romans 3:23 through 25. And then on page 19 he says this. Christ came to this world as our Redeemer. He became our substitute. He took our place in the conflict with Satan and sin. He was tempted on all points as we are, but never sinned. He loved righteousness and hated iniquity. His life of perfect obedience met the highest demands of the law. And oh, the wonder and the marvel of it is that God accepts Christ's righteousness in the place of our failure, our unrighteousness. The beauty is that you're seeing what they were teaching, what they believed during this time, and it's there in print. This name is hallowed by the angels of heaven, talking about, uh, and actually this is Ellen White's quote, I believe by the inhabitants of unfallen worlds. When you pray, hallowed be thy name. We quoted this yesterday. You ask that it may be hallowed in this world, hallowed in you. God has acknowledged you before men and angels as his child. Pray that you may do no dishonor to the worthy name by which ye are called. And then uh, continuing to quote from Ellen White, God sends you into the world as his representative. In every act of life, you are to make manifest the name of God. I want to skip down to the sentence at the end. Please read it with me underlined. This you can do only through the acceptance of the grace and righteousness of Christ. Quoting from Ellen White, Mount of Blessing, page 107, on page 19 of his book, Christ Our Righteousness. Now, he makes a couple observations. I had to summarize them into a couple of slides because I really started to get a little bit carried away with it, but I want you to see the points that are made here. This is what he says. These are his words, not Ellen White. He says, in 1888, there came to the Seventh-day Adventist Church a very definite awakening message. It was designated at the time as the message of righteousness by faith. Both the message itself and the manner of its coming made a deep and lasting impression upon the minds of ministers and people and the lapse of time has not erased that impression from memory. Now I want you to follow carefully what he says here. He says the impressions made have not lapsed with time. But follow what he says next. This to this day, 1926, Many of those who heard the message when it came are deeply interested in it and concerned regarding it. All these long years they have held a firm conviction and cherished a fond hope that someday this message would be given great prominence among us and that it would be do the cleansing, regenerating work in the church which they believed it was sent by the Lord to accomplish. Did you catch the wording? He says, someday we are under the conviction that one day this will do the work it's supposed to do. When somebody says, someday I hope it's going to be like this is supposed to be, what are they saying? It's not that way now. Right? Right? Just want to make sure you're clear. He says again on page 23, God's messages and providences are always great with meaning. They are always necessary for the accomplishment of the particular work with which they are connected. He orders them for the fulfillment of his purposes. They cannot be set aside. They cannot fail. Sooner or later, they will be understood, accepted, and given their proper place. Repeatedly, A.G. Daniels emphasizes the fact that we've got to admit That, and I say we, I'm talking about him, we have to admit, in 1926, we have not been where God wanted us to be. Okay, that's what he's saying. Therefore, on page 26, continuing, he says, Therefore it must be expected that the message of righteousness by faith, which came so definitely to the church in 1888, will be accorded a dominant place in the closing period of the great movement with which we are connected. And then I want to bring out um, a couple more slides here. Again, in your notes, how sad he says, how deeply regrettable it is that this message of righteousness in, in Christ should, at the time of its coming, have met with opposition in the part of the earnest, on the part of the earnest, well-meaning men in the cause of God. The message has what? Never been nor proclaimed, nor given free course as it should have been in order to convey to the church the measureless blessings that were wrapped within it. The seriousness of exerting such an influence is indicated through the reproofs that were given, these words of reproof and admonition should receive most thoughtful consideration at this time. You know, I look back and I say, all right, this man was alive in 1926. All this time from 1888, the time that followed with what Ellen White said and what she taught and what the other teachers taught during that time in relationship to righteousness by faith, they still, in 1926, had not yet gotten this in place where they knew it needed to be. They still believed it, it just wasn't there yet. Oh, that we had, uh, this is page 69 of the same book. Oh, that we had all listened as we should have, should to, both warning and appeal as they came to us in that seemingly strange yet impressive way at the conference in 1888. What uncertainty would have been removed, what wanderings and defeats and losses would have been prevented, what light and blessing and triumph and progress would have come to us. That's what they believed. That's what they were teaching at that particular time. And um, you and I have to evaluate this history. We have to evaluate these places and these things. And we have to start to ask ourselves, where does this fit into us today? We have to ask that. And again, they might be right and they might be wrong. But you have to decide what the Word of God says. You're not going to be able to come to the Lord Jesus and say, well, this is what so-and-so said, and this is what so-and-so said. Because it is only the Word of God that is your safeguard that is going to get you through the end of time. You and I must be students of the Word so that it is clear to us. Okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a quick, if it's a clarification, because I'm short on time. Cindy, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I wonder had a vision about the General Conference where they confessed their sins mm-hmm. and they were one together, but mm-hmm. it didn't happen. The Salamanca version. Does that have vision. a correlation with yeah. this? Okay, let me, let me just answer that real quick, and I will say yes, but not at this time. It was years before, and... Um, And you can find out more about it in Return of the Ladder Rain, I think, as well you'll find more information about that. Very important. It's a good question. And yes, it has significance. Okay, Let me go on. Now I'm going to do something today that's a bit of a risk. Okay, I'm going to say it right now. It's a bit of a risk. But it is one of the ways to be able to make a point. I want to tell you, I want to clearly tell you, that on what we're going to put on the screen today, there's a lot of controversy today, okay? And right now, I'm not trying to settle that controversy. Remember, we're reviewing the history from 1900 to 1950. You with me? From 1900 to 1950, I'm looking at the history because I want to ask the question, we need to ask the question, is what did the church believe and teach during that time? That is the question that we're trying to answer. I'm not trying to solve a theological debate. I am trying to help you to understand how the Word of God has been understood in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is one of the clearest ways that I can reveal that that I know of to be able to share with you how this progression has developed and what has happened and what has not happened, whatever the case may be. Please don't ask me what what am I trying to teach I'm trying to teach history right now. You with me? I'm not trying to teach theology. I'm trying to teach history. How you can do the two of those at the same time is tricky enough. (laughs) But I am teaching history, so you need to follow along with me. Here's what I'm going to share with you. I came across something online, and I want to confess to you that I've... I believe that these are all accurate, but I was having a hard time figuring out exactly where the source was, but I believe it's accurate because there's nothing there that's controversial. It's just simply Sabbath school lesson quotes from this time. Well, you would expect the Sabbath school lesson quarterly to be reflecting what was believed during that time, and it does. And so here are some statements, so we'll walk through them fairly quickly. Um, This one happens to be from 1905, and this is uh, in chronological order. Many hold that from the nature of Christ it was impossible for Satan's temptations to weaken or overthrow him. Then Christ could not have been placed in Adam's position to go over the ground where Adam stumbled and fell, He could not have gained the victory that Adam failed to gain. If man has in any sense a more trying conflict to endure than had Christ, then Christ is not able to succor him when tempted. Christ took humanity with all its liabilities. He took the nature of man capable of yielding to temptation, and with the same aid that man may obtain, he withstood the temptations of Satan and conquered the same as we may conquer." He assumed human nature being the, infirmities and degener- being the infirmities and degeneracy of the race. It is not true that humanity has trials to bear which the Son of God has not experienced. So that was the teaching, the Sabbath School Quarterly, uh, and this happens to be out of, uh, out of the Senior Division, third quarter, 1905, Okay. All right, so what we're trying to understand is what was the church teaching during this period from 1900 to 1950. In uh, 1909, Sabbath school quarterly, Jesus was God acting in sinful flesh. On behalf of the sinner, he made himself one with humanity. Again, a similar uh, idea and concept. Now from 1913. By assuming sinful flesh and voluntarily making himself dependent upon his Father to keep him from sin while he was in the world, Jesus not only set the example for all Christians, but also made it possible for him to minister for himself flesh, minister for sinful flesh, the gift of his own spirit, and the power for obedience to the will of God. Now, so far you can see the consistency of what was being taught ...from even back before 1900, but especially right now, our period, 1900 to 1950. That was 1913. Here's 1914. That son took the flesh of sinful man and overcame where man failed, overthrew sin in the flesh. That again, 1914. Going to 1921, Christ assumed not the original unfallen, but our fallen humanity... In the second experiment, he stood not precisely where Adam before him had, but as has already been said, with intense odds against him. That was in the uh, quarterly for 1921, first quarter of 1921. It's kind of interesting that they talked about it that much over the period of time. But remember, we are jumping from year to year here. 1923, Christ took upon Himself the infirmities and sins of of the flesh, but to every sin He died, every lust He crucified, every selfish desire He denied Himself, and all for our sakes. 1923, remember, A.G. Daniels is the president of the General Conference at this time. It's consistent with what he says in his book, and it's consistent with other documentation from history. We go to 1942. Oh, now there's a significant jump. We go from the time of A.G. Daniel's presidency, from the time when his book was written, to 1942, and this now is in a book called Bible Readings for the Home. This is what it says in Bible Readings for the Home. In His humanity, Christ partook of our sinful, fallen nature... If not, then he was not made like unto his brethren, and was not in all points tempted like as we are, did not overcome as we have to overcome, and is not therefore the complete and perfect Savior man needs and must have to be saved. On his human, human side, from his very conception, he was begotten and born of the Spirit." Now, that's not implying anything that goes toward the anti-Trinitarian issues or whatever. It's simply talking about the nature of Christ consistent with what the church had been teaching from 1900 to 1942 here. The church was consistently teaching that, and it was in that book. In 1952, Francis D. Nickel, in a book, Answers to Objections, made this comment. Seventh-day Adventists teach that, like all mankind, Christ was born with a sinful nature. This plainly indicates that his heart, too, was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He's only caught quoting a scripture there, not saying that Jesus was sinful. So stay with the paragraph and don't get caught up in that. In harmony with this, they also teach that Christ might have failed while on his mission to earth as man's Savior, that he came into the world at the risk of failure and eternal loss. But the Bible repeatedly states that Christ was holy, that he knew no sin, and that he would not fail nor be discouraged. Part of what's happening in this Uh, paragraph is he's responding to where in other Christian denominations there are people who believe that Jesus could never have failed. He came down here and there was no way that he could have failed. He could never have failed. And and that is a powerful teaching within the Christian church. Whether you're talking about the nature of Christ as having a sinful nature be, um, after the fall of, of Adam or before, they just don't believe... That he could ever have failed, period, regarding of regardless of what you might think about his nature. And so that's what he's answering. But notice that he goes a step farther and he specifically says, this is what Seventh-day Adventists believe. And that is consistent with the teaching of the church. Now let's go a little bit farther. In other words, Adams believed that Christ, the last Adam, possessed on his human side a nature like that of the first man, Adam, a nature free from every defiling taint of sin, but capable of responding to sin, and that nature was handicapped by the debilitating effects of 4,000 years of sin's inroads on man's body and nervous system and environment. In essence, he's quoting from Desire of Ages, okay? In essence, he's quoting from Desire of Ages about... Taking uh, about Christ taking on the nature of man after 4,000 years of degeneracy. So I just want you to get that connection and see that part there. The last thing I want to bring up here, and then I'm going to make you make the observation that I found significance in regard to the general conference presidents listed there. And that is in 1950, William Branson Uh, wrote a book, Drama of the Ages, and it was published under the title uh, Drama of the Ages by Southern Publishing, authored by the General Conference President William Branson. He was president in 1950. He was in that list of presidents that you saw there. And this book was distributed and sold all over the English-speaking world. On page 70 of this missionary book, Branson wrote that Christ had taken upon himself the nature of fallen man. He was the General Conference president. He's writing in 1950. We see a span on this particular doctrine from 1900 to 1950, and we see what it is that the church was teaching at that time, and the General Conference president is the one making this statement. So here I want to draw some conclusions today. Again, I'm drawing conclusions focused on history. I'm not teaching theology today. I'm teaching history. Are you all with me? Okay? That's really, really, really important. From 1900 to 1950 was a time of relative stability in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. In spite of the instability in the world, two world wars, the church was growing rapidly, growing from 75,000 to 756,000, multiplying 10 times in 50 years. Doctrinal stability and consistency relative to the Christ our righteousness is an evidence of some consistency within the doctrines of the church. Now that can be both good and bad. As A.G. Daniels points out, that many were excited about the message of Christ our righteousness and that the years had not erased the importance of the message, but they cherished a fond hope that someday it would be given prominence among us and then said sooner or later they they will be understood, that is the teachings, accepted and given their proper place. The good and the bad is they were consistently following and having that understanding, but the bad part is they weren't living it so to speak. You understand? Because that's what Daniel said. He said, we've got the information, we see the history, but we're losing focus on the fact that this is what God wants us to be doing and living now before he returns. That's my summary of what Daniel was saying. So some had accepted the message, but it did not have prominence. It was not understood or accepted as it should be and yet some important biblical teaching, teachings as perceived by the church regarding Christ our righteousness were taught in the church, including the doctrine of the nature of Christ as illustrated in the above material. So what we're doing is we're trying to understand the way that the church has progressed in its understanding. We need to understand, folks that all along the way, God has been leading and shedding light on his people. Amen? I happen to be a vegetarian today. I'm a vegetarian because I believe that that's the message of the word of God and clearly taught by the spirit of prophecy. But our early Adventist pioneers were not vegetarians. When Ellen White was con- finally confronted with the message of, of uh, being a vegetarian and healthful living and so on and so forth, she had to say, I'm not going to eat. If I can't eat without eating meat, then I'm just going to sit here and not eat. That's, right. That's what she had to tell herself. If, I'm, if, I'm, if I shouldn't be eating butter, then I'm not going to put butter on my plate. Ellen White wrestled with humanity like you and I do. But a teaching and learning was progressive based upon the Word of God. The sanctuary was progressive, wasn't it? From the time of William Miller, they understood the sanctuary, but they missed some key points, and along came the teaching of the Word of God after the Great Disappointment as Hiram Edson's passing through a field, and people like to make fun of that, but it's not funny because they came out of prayer and God gave him light that he compared to the Word of God and found it to be true. I don't go back and change that particular doctrine because they didn't have it first when William Miller came along. I believe that because it's still consistent with Scripture. What I believe today must be consistent with Scripture. If something changes along the way, I ask myself, who changed it? Did it change because it's now better light on the, on the Word of God, or did it get changed some other way along the way? You and I, as we review history, these things get to be clearer to us, but we must take our history and compare it with the Word of God. Christ, Our Righteousness tomorrow, we're going to talk about from 1915 until now. That's a handful a critical study and uh, that we need to do tomorrow but i want to ask you to do this would you please pray that god will help us in our study we can't afford to make mistakes today folks i can't afford to teach something wrong and you can't believe, afford to believe something wrong you and i must review this very very carefully we must take what we look at in history and we must compare it to the Word of God. Tomorrow, you are going to have to look at a couple of things, a couple of paths, but they don't run the same track. You're going to have to look at those and make a decision. Now, I believe God's in charge of His church. How many of you believe that? I believe God is going to take His church through to victory. I believe that those two paths, God's going to take care of them. You with me? God is going to take care of those paths. It's his church. He's got to. He has to take care of those paths. So you and I need to pray that God is going to guide us and make it clear. What is it we need to be zeroing in on and where we need to focus our study? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we come to the end of our session today reminded that you are in charge of your church. Down through the years from 1844, 1888 till 1950, your church continued to grow as it studied the word of God. There were challenges along the way and struggles along the way, some believing this and that but you had your hand on your church and you kept them consistent and you helped them to grow. Father in heaven, we need to be consistent and I pray that you will help us for our journey needs to continue to evaluate history, even our own history, our more immediate history in the light of the word of God. So I pray, Father, that you will make us men and women of prayer between now and tomorrow that we might find in you, the truth as it is in Jesus. Thank you for hearing our prayer. Go with us as we leave this place tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www. Dot audioverse.org